And this morning's gospel reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Barrett. If you're a little confused like Barrett was, this is the same scripture lesson from last Sunday. We're doing it again. The Beatitudes are the beginning of Jesus' famous uh, block of teaching the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is introducing and inviting us into life in his kingdom. And it's worth uh, dipping in a second time to see what he has to say to us. Let's pray. Gracious God, we ask that the words of my mouth would be your words, that the meditations, the reflections, the questions and the thoughts and the insights of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And would you be true to your promises Oh God, to be present with us and to be powerful through your word for us. We each need you. We each need you in unique ways that are true to ourselves, uh, but we do have this in common. We all need your grace. None of us can enter into your presence on our own. None of us can live the lives that we long to live on our own. We need you, and we need you in all your goodness We need you for us, and so we thank you that your promises are true, even this moment, right now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned, the Beatitudes are the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and they are a blessing from Jesus to the people who are entering into his kingdom through faith, receiving his invitation to come and live the life that Jesus is bringing, a life with God and a life that is able to be lived for others. And so he gives these blessings, and as he gives blessings, he attaches them to a description of the kind of life that we are enabled to live in the kingdom. And so he gives a gracious invitation, and then he gives a gracious picture of what that life can look like. And that's the Beatitudes. And so last week, we took a look at that gracious upside-down invitation. Who is the kingdom for? 
It's for the least, the last, and the lost. It's for those who have hit rock bottom. It's for all those who are coming to Jesus to receive his healing and to receive his teaching because they recognized that they needed what he had, that in and of themselves they were lost. They were undone. It's, it's those to whom Jesus was offering the kingdom because the kingdom is for everyone. It's God's gracious invitation to those who know that they need it. It's an upside-down invitation, not the kind of people that you would expect somebody to say, you are the favored one, you are the fortunate one, and yet here it is. The gracious invitation into the kingdom, the gracious welcome. And then this morning, we want to look at this gracious picture of the life of the kingdom. Through faith in Jesus, we are invited into a life with God, a life lived under his rule, And though it may not appear to be this way to us all the time, it is the good life. It is the best life that we could possibly live. It's on display here in the Beatitudes. We get to take a look at it this morning. It doesn't always look like the good life, does it? When you look at things like you will be persecuted for righteousness sake and for my sake, you may mourn from time to time. You may seek after righteousness and not find it. It doesn't always look like the good life, and yet it is. How can that be, and how can we receive it? Uh, Maybe an illustration to start us off. Kids, I think you're going to be able to get this illustration better than adults because your imaginations are still fresh and strong, and you can do this. Imagine with me, all of us, but especially kids, imagine with me that we lived underwater, We lived in a kingdom of the sea, and we had always lived this way as human beings, right? We didn't know anything else. We didn't know what it's like to live on land, breathing air. All we knew is life underwater. Does that sound cool? Maybe a little bit, right? But not like Aquaman living underwater where you're made for it and you can breathe through the water. No, you're a human being. And you were made to breathe air, and yet you're living underwater. The whole kingdom is living underwater. That's all you've ever known. And so it's a life that involves scuba gear. And it's a life that involves weighted boots so you can walk around on the bottom of the sea. And some people in this kingdom will have adjusted to this life better than others. Who are the people that are able to enjoy this kind of life? Well, it's the kind of people that have the power and the resources to harness the technology to make the best of it, right? Those are the kinds of people that can get by living underwater. The kinds of people that have the best air system that gets the air into your house. The people that can afford the best kind of seaweed food, right? The people that can get the fanciest scuba gear so that they can breathe well all the time. Those are the people that are going to be able to appreciate and enjoy life in this kingdom. But not everybody is going to be that fortunate, right? Some people are not going to have the right equipment. They're not going to have access to resources. And for those kinds of people, life underwater is going to be really tough. When you have to figure out every day, where am I going to find the air that I need to breathe just to survive? Imagine you live underwater and it's all you've ever known. It's a kingdom. And then imagine somebody comes into your underwater kingdom, and he says, listen, I'm a king. 
from a different kingdom. In fact, it's more than a kingdom. It's like a whole other universe, like a whole different world. It's the world that you were made to live in. It's a world that has air and land. It's a world in which you walk around and you breathe and you feel this thing called sunlight on your face. It's a world in which you're able to function the way that you were made to function. Your legs work. You eat the food that you're made to eat. Guess what, everybody? I can take you to that kingdom right now. Who's coming? If we lived in that underwater kingdom, who takes that king up on his offer? Who goes with him to the kingdom of land and air? The people who have nothing to lose, right? Those of us for whom life underwater is hard and it doesn't really work, and we know it. We're going with that king. I almost said we're going with Jesus, right? I almost ruined the metaphor. Too early. Who are the people who aren't going to go? Well, the people that say, hey, you know what? I just bought my brand new pair of gold-plated weighted boots. I'm not ready to go to your kingdom. Hey, I just got the latest air filtration system. I'm good. Hey, listen, I'm a mayor in this town. I have influence. People like me. I'm not ready to leave this yet. Right? And you could scream till you're blue in the face. Listen, you don't know the whole picture. You don't know how good this life is that I'm offering you. You don't know how subpar this life is that you're living yet. For those who think they have a lot to lose, it's going to be hard to take the invitation up to go into the kingdom of air and land. Right? This is a picture of what Jesus is doing here in the Beatitudes when he says the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom is here. Life the way it's supposed to be lived. And you can come on in. It's for you. You were made to live in this kind of kingdom. Whether you know it or not, you have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Nothing to lose and everything to gain. I think that's the picture that we're meant to grasp in these Beatitudes, that Jesus is inviting us into his kingdom. Let me come around a side door with a question. Why don't we take up his invitation and live it out joyfully every day? For some of us, why haven't we yet come into his kingdom for the first time? And for others of us, why, as his followers, don't we live into this kingdom more richly and more fully? Why don't we take him up on the offer to experience this life more than we do? Not a rhetorical question. Why? I think there's at least two answers. Because we think we have something to lose and we don't know what we have to gain, right? We think we have much to lose, and we don't realize just how much we have to gain if we enter into his kingdom. I think we can see this particularly in the first beatitude in terms of the fact that we actually have 
nothing to lose. This is the key to cracking the code of how the Beatitudes work, is this first Beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember last week we talked about who it was that had gathered around Jesus. It was those who had indeed hit rock bottom in their lives. Those who were afflicted with diseases, those who were oppressed, those who had no finances and no funding. It was those who had no other option and they were ready to turn to Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why are they blessed? Are they blessed because there's something intrinsically virtuous or valuable about being poor or about being uh, poor in your spirit of being? No, not at all. They're blessed because they're coming into the kingdom. And why are they coming into the kingdom? Because they've got nothing to lose. Some of us believe that we have something to lose, that we have much to lose. And so Jesus says cryptic things like, it's harder for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because a rich person thinks they have a lot to lose. As we make our way through the gospel of Matthew, and as you read your way through the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and you see the people that respond to Jesus, everywhere and every time, the ones who respond to his gracious invitation with enthusiasm and with dedication and with faith are the ones who have nothing to lose. Or we're going to teach our way through the Sermon on the Mount, which gets us from Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. And then in Matthew 8 and Matthew 9, Jesus picks up, Matthew picks up with telling us more about how Jesus lives this kingdom out. And the people that respond, you see over and over and over again, are those who have nothing to lose. Think about Matthew, I think it's the beginning of chapter 9, the paralytic. Kids, do you remember the story of the paralytic? Right, the fancy word for somebody whose legs don't work. But he's got four good friends, right? And so the paralytic wants to see Jesus. And can you imagine how the conversation might have gone with the paralytic and his friends? His friends say, hey, why don't we go see Jesus? The paralytic's like, yeah, why not? My legs don't work. I got nothing else to do. And they say, well, it might be a little challenging because there's huge crowds. And so we might have to do something illegal, like, break into somebody's house by destroying their roof. And what's the paralytic going to say? Yeah, I'll do that. Why not? I got nothing else to lose, right? Whatever they say, well, you know, it, it might actually be embarrassing and we'll lose some social standing in the community because we're the people that break into the house and embarrass Jesus. Why not? I'll do it. I got nothing else to lose. Nothing to lose. He's the kind of person that comes to Jesus, Think about the flip side of the coin. Greg Grooms two weeks ago talked about the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19. Do you remember this story? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus filled with sincerity and says, what do I need to do to enter into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus, knowing his heart, said, sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, and come on in. And what happened? Some of the hardest words in the whole Bible. He went away sad. He couldn't do it because he believed that he had everything to lose. I think the gospel patron saint of this 
everything to gain, nothing to lose, is Zacchaeus. Kids, you remember Zacchaeus? One of the good stories, right? Because Zacchaeus is a little guy, and he really wants to see Jesus. And so he climbs up into a tree so that he can just get a glimpse of Jesus as he comes by. Do you remember the story? But do you remember who Zacchaeus is, right? He is a tax collector, which means Zacchaeus actually has a lot to lose. Or so he thinks he has money. He has standing. He has the ability not just to survive, but even to thrive in a hard world. He's got a lot. And yet when he sees Jesus, he realizes that it's actually nothing. It's nothing compared to what he could have with Jesus. And he gives his life to Jesus, and he comes into the kingdom. And Jesus puts him to work. He says, hey, Zacchaeus, throw me a party in my kingdom. And Zacchaeus says, absolutely, I'll do it. And I'm going to sell half my possessions and give them to the poor because I've got nothing to lose compared to having you, Jesus, and life in your kingdom. Friends, the question before us is do we know that we actually have nothing to lose from our life outside of Christ? There's nothing that ought to hold us back from coming in and gaining everything through him in the kingdom of heaven. Are our hearts like the rich young rulers? That if we're honest with ourselves, we believe we have lots to lose. And it does feel like we have much to lose. Does it not? We live in the wealthiest culture in the history of humanity. We live in a culture that has more information at our fingertips than any other culture in the history of humanity. We have more advanced technology than any culture in history. We have more opportunity and freedom than any culture in history. And in this culture, we live in Austin. We live in a city that has the best food in this superlative culture, right? The best music in this superlative culture. All sorts of awesome job opportunities in this superlative culture. We live in this culture in which it feels like we have all kinds of things to lose. And yet the story of the scripture, the story of the Beatitudes, the story of the Sermon on the Mount, the story of the kingdom, the story of our own hearts if we're willing to recognize it, is that none of those things, if we turn to them, as load-bearing for our lives. None of those things, if we look to them to give our lives the meaning and the purpose that we desire, none of those things, if we look to them to give us the happiness and the satisfaction and the fulfillment that we're looking for, none of those things amount to a hill of beans. They don't satisfy. They can't. They weren't made to. Right, Jesus is inviting us into the kingdom of heaven. And as we see in the Beatitudes, it's a kingdom that will come in its fullness and will last for eternity. And so one reason these things in our lives can't satisfy is because we can't take them with us. And that's true. But they don't even satisfy fully now. 
in our lives. Do they? When we look to them for the kind of meaning and purpose that we know we're made for. I'll give you just one illustration of this. Now, there was a 2018 study that found nearly half of Americans report either sometimes or always feeling alone. Either sometimes or always feeling alone. In this world of superlatives that we have, in which everything is at our fingertips, half of Americans are lonely chronically. 47% of Americans say that they have they do not have meaningful in-person social interactions on a daily basis, such as an extended conversation or quality time with friends or family. Half of Americans say that they don't have meaningful face-to-face human interaction on a daily basis. The study went on to say that loneliness affects both physical and mental health in ways comparable to the damage done by smoking 15 cigarettes per day. I don't know how they calculate that, but that's an amazing statistic. And think about the campaign that has gone into helping us wean ourselves off of cigarettes as a way to live the good life, right? And yet, we hold on to all these other things, thinking that they are going to bring us the meaning and the satisfaction and the happiness that we want. And Jesus says, you got nothing to lose. All of that, apart from life in God's kingdom, will amount to nothing for you. And yet, at the same time, you have everything to gain. One more reason why you have nothing to lose. Even if the things that we look to in our lives to build up the kingdom of me, to bring us the satisfaction and the fulfillment that we desire. Even if those things do deliver for a time, they cannot, they cannot deliver what we most desperately need, whether we know it or not, which is life with God. Right, the very center of the Beatitudes is blessed are the pure in heart for they shall what? They shall see God. The deepest longing of every human heart is to see and know and be in relationship with the God who made us and loves us. And anything that we're looking to apart from Christ cannot bring us that. And so we've got nothing to lose. Graham Tomlin is an Anglican pastor. Uh, He wrote a great book uh, on the cross for the season of Lent a few years back. And he says this, he says, we tend to come before God dressed up in our acquired prowess or our moral victories or life's successes, right? We come to him with our scuba gear and our gold-plated weighted boots. He didn't say that. I said that. Mixing metaphors. You're with me. He goes on to say, yet before God, none of these count for anything. The cross, this paradoxical manifestation of divine contrariness, renders human power empty because it tells us that the only way we may approach God is through the narrow cross-shaped gate of repentance and faith in the one who died for us. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying whatever we think we have, it can't get the job done for what we most desperately need. 
which is life with God. And so Jesus says, good news, you have nothing to lose. And through me, you have everything to gain. First beatitude, nothing to gain. And the rest of the beatitudes, sorry, nothing to lose. The rest of the beatitudes, everything to gain. Right, Jesus is painting a picture, though it doesn't always look like it, a picture of a life in which we have everything to gain, the fullness of flourishing, the kind of life that we were made to live and that we long to live. Jesus captures this in the second half of each of the Beatitudes, right? He talks about what we have to gain. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, life in the kingdom in which God rules. That's something to gain. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We have to gain the comfort that will come when everything that causes mourning in our lives will no longer be. The deep, rich comfort of restoration. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The kingdom to come is not just a disembodied heavenly thing. It's the new heavens and the new earth. The Apostle Paul says, when Christ comes again, those who are united to him will rule with him. We're inheriting the earth itself in some kind of mysterious but real way. That's much to gain. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The satisfaction of being the righteous person that you long to be. The satisfaction of seeing righteousness come to rule and reign in relationships between people and in entire societies. Friends, what we have to gain, Jesus is saying, is cosmic. It's huge. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, which each and every one of us knows deep down we need from a good God his mercy, his favor that we do not deserve. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God, sons and daughters of God. An identity that is not at risk or at threat because we've been adopted into the very family of divinity. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Again, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all, all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Right, we don't always or often talk about rewards, because salvation is a gift, and it is a gift, but Jesus just said it. You've got rewards coming in the kingdom. Everything to gain, nothing to lose. But here's what I want to end with. All of that to gain, the life that will come when Jesus returns in full, a life that we can begin to experience now, these amazing blessings that Jesus pronounces, but not only the blessings that we have to gain. We have to gain the privilege of living the kingdom lives to which these blessings are attached. In other words, we get to be peacemakers. We get to become more and more and more merciful people. We get to become more and more and more people that mourn the hurt of other people. We get to become more and more and more by God's grace and by the power of His Spirit. People who hunger for righteousness, 
not just moral uprightness, though that is true, but who hunger to see righteousness come to others. We get to be these kinds of people. And what Jesus is saying is these are the best kinds of people that you could possibly be. To be somebody who is meek and shows mercy to another as a characteristic of your life for the rest of your life, there's no better person to be. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? Jesus is saying, this is the good life. You get to gain this. You get to gain being this kind of person. Not just in the future forever, but right now. United to Jesus by the power of his spirit in you. Do we believe that we have that kind of life to gain? That if someone were to look at our lives, they would say, good on you, you're the fortunate one. Not because you've achieved success or wealth or beauty or whatever else marker we're looking for. But because in Jesus, we're becoming more and more the kind of person who is kind to others. More and more the kind of person who gives oneself away for the good of another. Douglas Coupland uh, is a novelist. He's a Gen Xer like myself. He wrote a book called Life After God. I don't know if anyone's read this. Has anyone read Life After God, Douglas Coupland? The great thing about Douglas Coupland is that he exposes the underbelly of Gen X, right? So all you millennials in here who feel like you're always getting picked on, and you are, and I'm sorry, Gen Xers are no better, right? If we make a caricature of a group of people based on their worst traits, everybody can look bad, and Gen Xers are no exception, right? And so Douglas Coupland writes these books about Gen Xers who are cynical and sarcastic and ironic and jaded, and live a life of self-indulgence, looking for some kind of happiness or satisfaction, but not knowing where to find it. And at the end of the novel, he puts these words in his protagonist's mouth. Now here is my secret. I tell it to you with an openness of heart that I doubt I shall ever achieve again. So I pray you are in a quiet room as you hear these words. My secret is this, I need God. My secret is that I am sick and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me give because I can no longer give. I need God to help me be kind as I no longer seem capable of kindness. I need God to help me love as I seem beyond being able to love. Do you hear what he's saying? He's come to the end of a life and a kingdom in which he's chased every desire that he wants. And he's realized at the end of the day, what he actually wants deep down is to be a giving, loving, kind person and he can't do it without God. And Jesus would say, blessed are you. Yours is the kingdom. Come on in. The water is fine. Come become the kind of person that you're realizing you want to be. It's the best life possible. And it's yours. Nothing to lose. Everything to gain.
Friends, Jesus is not saying, go be meek and go be merciful and go make peace. And if you do, I'll let you into my kingdom. Jesus is saying, I am meek. I wielded my power in weakness for you. I gave my very life for you. I am the peacemaker. In my death and resurrection, God has reconciled his world to himself, not counting their sins against them through me. I am the merciful one. I am the poor in spirit. I've done everything that you need. I've taken care of it all. And so the kingdom is yours. Come live it. Come enjoy being this kind of person. Which of these characteristics of the good life that Jesus is offering is the Holy Spirit nudging your heart right now to pursue? Are you longing to be merciful and don't know how? Are you longing to be a peacemaker? Are you longing for righteousness in your life? Are you longing to be the kind of person that can bring righteousness and things being made right into the lives of your friends? Jesus is saying, come on in. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Let's respond to him in faith together. Would you pray with me? Jesus, uh, thank you for your beatitudes. For some of us, they feel like comfort and balm. And for some of us, they feel like challenge. And so would you give us the wisdom and courage to be able to hear your voice, uh, to know what you are calling us to? Would you give us eyes to see the ways that our lives are lacking apart from you and the ways that our lives can be full with you? And we'll give you all the glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.